Hi, listeners. Quest coming in at the top. I just want you to know that there is some very light discussion of sexual assault in this episode. It is not discussed in any detail. It is just mentioned as a thing that happens. But if that is a thing that you need to not listen to, we will provide timestamps. And if you just need to peace out of this episode, we totally understand. Thank you and take care of yourself. Welcome to Ghosts Were People Too, a podcast that investigates ghosts through the lens of the arts and humanities. I'm Annabelle. And I'm Quest. If I asked you to imagine a ghost... My favorite pastime. (laughs) Chances are, among all the different shapes that ghosts may take, one probably comes to mind before all the rest. A pirate. I'm not even going to ask. Let me rephrase that. Today's topic is something shrouded in mystery, but we've got no shortage of material. (laughs) We don't want to make any blanket statements, but this may be the very fabric ghosts are made from. We're going to spin you a yarn and tie up some loose threads. On today's laundry list, we've got skeleton trios, Obi-Wan Kenobi, ghost impersonators, pantyhose, Norman fucking Rockwell, and no feet. Get ready to learn all about sheet ghosts. Feet ghosts? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. You said sheet ghosts. So yeah, if you're into feet, this is not the episode for you because there will be no feet. I don't even know what to say. (laughs) I'm sorry. You know, all the clever stuff was already... (laughs) built into the script and then i went completely off script before we talk about sheet ghosts we're talking about you know ghosts with like the bed sheet type look over them exactly a ghost that wears a white but not always white piece of cloth sheet but not always bed sheet exactly yes so i wanted to ask you a question i've known you for many halloweens yes But have you ever dressed as a sheet ghost? Not for Halloween. But for not Halloween? I am 99% sure that I put on a sheet and went woo at some point in my childhood. Yeah, okay. I've done that in my adulthood. Sometimes Nick, shout out to Nick, uh, that's my boyfriend. Uh, Sometimes he'll just leave the room and come back and I will be blanketed. Oh. As a sheet ghost. So this is something you're into. <laughs> nah. <laughs> well, what I was... See, my anecdote, I wasn't even going to mention that, but <laughs> when I was a child... I'm avoiding <laughs> eye contact, FYI. Do you remember at my old house, there was this blanket and it was like a light blue and then a darker blue and a cream and a tan and a purple. It was this big blanket that was always on the couch. No, but it, okay. Yeah. And a lot of the time, me or any of my siblings would just wrap ourselves up in it, like over your shoulders, over your body, over your head, making like a robey hoodie kind of a thing. And just about every time my mom would say, oh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> 
Okay, this is not sheet ghost related, although Obi-Wan Kenobi is, you know, canon ghost material for sure. When I was a kid, my dad had this thing where he would say something that I should do or even just like, you know, uh, tell me to to bring the lemonade over and <laughs> as you do. And he would say, thank you, my young Padawan. And I would pretend like it really made me angry. Because it, like, it, it just, it, it, I think I loved it, but it also really bothered me. And I'd be like, ah, no, no, I'm not your young Padawan. Um, it's kind of one of those things that is just almost like inexplicable. And it's inexplicable, like, nature of just becoming a, a, a turn of phrase that gets repeated all the time is like the thing that like irks you almost right yeah it was like cringe before cringe existed but also the cringe that you want cringe that you want which is actually related to horror and i think related to this podcast very deeply cringe, yeah. cringe that you want that should be our new tagline <laughs> no <laughs> i disagree ghosts were people too cringe that you want okay let's let's get into the content here my young padawans so this is another one of those episodes where there was a weird research story it's not like super long but it's just that i started off with several articles and they were on things like mental floss where it was like this is a listicle gold mine topic and I believe, and I'll get into this later with a certain amount of fury, that, like, all of those listicles are plagiarizing from each other. And, like, one of these people read the book that they're citing, and then the others are just paraphrasing until it gets further and further from what the actual academic point was. Yes, absolutely. I got the telephone. same impression. Yeah. 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 Big game of telephone. um, Spirit phone. And so... I eventually, within that, found one book that was actually reputable. It was so well written. I really enjoyed it. And she did, throughout, every once in a while, trace the history of the sheet ghost. It wasn't like a specific project of hers, but when it came up, she brought it up. So this is The Ghost, A Cultural History by Susan Owens, published in 2017, so not even that old. Like, she got pretty recent in some of her references at the very end. What's also funny is there was another book with a similar title. It was something like Ghosts, A Social History by Owen Davies that oh came gosh. up several times. There's something about the name Owen. Yeah. Wow. And... I do need to read that one because that's going to be pertinent to a later episode topic that I'm excited to uh, – that I'll, I'll touch on a tiny bit here. But what I really liked about Susan Owens is I start reading this book and it's mostly talking literary at the beginning. And then she starts to get into visual motifs and she's describing things so well. A thing that people may not – know about me, even if they know me, is that not only do I have degrees in theater arts, but I also have a degree in art history. So visual analysis and a visual description is something that's like, it comes to me naturally. I can tell if it's good or not. And she's doing a really good job at just describing in very like a, a quick pace, but like what the looks of the faces on the people in this picture are and what's on the left and what's on the right and here's the color field like terms that are sometimes 
academic in nature. And I found out that Susan Owens is an art historian first and foremost. So this is going to be a bit of a visual episode because this is a visual trope. Something people might not know about me is that I thought about getting a degree in art history. uh, And therefore, I'm going to be providing a lot of the visual descriptions for this episode. But we will also be posting sources on our socials so that you can easily access these visuals as well. And also what I thought would be fun is because I've spent a long time looking at these images that Annabelle hasn't yet. So getting her first impression, I think, is going to be fun and, and you know, some some live reaction content. That's what we're here for. <laughs> I'm very excited about this, too. But let's let's start with the history. And I, I think it does begin, like you said, with some literary and sort of cultural knowledge, right? Yeah. So up until the 19th century, dead people were typically wrapped in burial shrouds instead of buried in coffins. And especially there's a class feature there. The people who are poorer are going to be buried in things that are more easily replaced or easily obtained than having to go out and make a specific coffin, right? And oftentimes these sheets would even just be the one that was on the deathbed and the the corpse would be tied up in that and buried in this little blanket sausage. So it was also (laughs) eco-friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back to that maybe. And when the dead return as ghosts in pre-modern England, and that's where Owens's research is based in English culture, These ghosts are described not the way we think of them as a translucent body, the way the person looked in life, but in pre-modern England, these ghosts are generally described as a rotting corpse of some sort. Though that's not even always the case because sometimes they were described as looking like animals, a horse, a crow, a dog, a goat, a cow, a whirling heap of hay and i don't know what that's supposed to look like and then what i also thought was interesting is that owens she doesn't really make anything of this but in one account it's described as quote a square piece of canvas that rolls around huh i i don't even know what to say about that i'm trying to visualize a Square, rolling. It's, I'm I'm picturing like uh, <laughs> the magic carpet in Aladdin. Okay, but in any case, something that's standing out to me here is that it seems like these images of ghosts are not only a lot more closely connected to death and and mystical experiences, but it feels very, for lack of a better word, pagan very pre-Christian, very aligned with what we have now adopted as zombies in our culture today. So that's really fascinating to me. It's not so much a person stuck in time as it is some sort of return of the immediate dead in some new form or some form that it looks like a corpse. Yeah, and a lot of this might even be closer to how we conceptualize a spirit 
mm-hmm. or yeah. if you think about certain cultures have ideas of people coming back as ex animal, right, right, yeah, and that feels a little bit more akin to this as opposed to the ghost as it's been like it it just feels very ancient and pre-christian to me yeah even though this is right around the time when christianity is starting to take over the western world yeah but but it's taking hold however a lot of those cultural markers are still very strong absolutely as they are today yeah so circa 1300 Ghosts are increasingly depicted as skeletons wearing shrouds. So we're continuing on this idea of the decomposing body being connected to the the apparition, the phantom. Mm -hmm. And there's this medieval preoccupation with decomposition of the shroud as well as the body. So there's this visual motif that recurs called the three alive and three dead motif where you show Three alive people, they're typically kings and they're hunters, and they encounter three ghosts, three revenants, whatever you want to call them. And it's very memento mori. It's very as you are, I once was, as I am, you shall be. Right, and it's around the same era that a lot of those memento mori images come in in the dance macabre, right? Yes, dance macabre, yeah. Yeah. And one of the specific examples Owens brings up, but I know that it transcends this specific example, the three dead in this depiction are in various states of decay. Each one, one of them, how do I say that? (laughs) They are becoming more and more jacked up yeah yeah ghost one (laughs) is more decomposed than ghost two and ghost two is more decomposed than ghost three i think that's clear it's like the stages of decomposition i wanted to say each was more decomposed than the last but anyway uh so one of them doesn't even have a shroud anymore the shroud has completely decomposed they even have worms shown on them Mm. so To me, that really shows that the ghost and the shroud are already conceptualized as one being. Love your suit. And the cultural notion that ghosts wore shrouds became so widespread by the 1400s that some English thieves began to wear white bedsheets in order to frighten the people from whom they were stealing. And thus begins so, so many cultural depictions of people imitating ghosts with these shrouds yeah and that's going to be a recurring theme today so we right now are looking at a three alive and three dead motif from the delisle psalter circa 1308 to 1340 so i'm noticing that this is three women on the left hand panel there's two panels and then on the right hand panel which has a what now looks like a faded green background, we have the three decaying corpses. And they mirror each other. So there's a woman in the center who's kind of got an S-curve shape in the way she's standing um, and looks very contemplative. And she is mirroring the corpse in the center who looks like she's wearing a shroud almost like a mantle. It's like covering her head almost like a hood. And they're making the same pose. So you can really see that 
there's supposed to be a mirror image or a connection between the three seemingly well-to-do, richly dressed women and these slowly decaying, wormy corpses. And the one on the right, the corpse on the right, is the most naked. Its guts have completely rotted out, and it has what looks like a huge grin. So there's also this horrifying playfulness, in my opinion, to this image. It also, if you think about it, it's definitely going left to right. You have the living on the left and the dead on the right. So if you're reading it pictorially like that, you're progressing. And for the dead, the dead on the furthest left has its arms crossed as we typically imagine people when they're buried. And the one on the furthest right has no shroud whatsoever. So that's probably also telling us that that's the order in which we're supposed to read them as least to most decomposed. Now, I saw this as three women and three corpses, but I imagine you could also read this as the progression through this woman's life. Oh, that's interesting. So this does, and this is something I have earmarked for a future episode, there is a specific poem that connects to the story here. It's funny that you read these as women. I'm pretty sure that they're supposed to be kings, but I can see how our gender notions would make us, because it looks like they're wearing gowns and their hair is long and curly. Yeah. Okay, That I can see that as well, which... I also have to say, and I'm not an expert in medieval dress at all, but the medieval dress of these kings, to me, looks very, very similar to the medieval dress of the women. And probably if you were living in this time, you could quite easily tell the difference. But the pieces are very much the same. You know, you have the close-fitting sort of kirtle with a cloak and a, a bonnet or the hair coiffed. There's coiffed, a lot coiffed. of attention to the hair in yeah. the way this was rendered. Yeah. The other thing I want to point out is that the field behind the dead is adorned with flowers, which helps us with the idea of them being interred, perhaps. Yes, I see that. They're also, I gotta say, they're a little spermy. Those flowers are a little sperm-like. I, I was just about to say that, but I honestly didn't even want to open that can of sperms. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to the next one. Now that I've misgendered the kings and uh, we've called out the sperms, let's let's talk about how we see ghosts in the medieval period. So continuing on with the idea of ghost impersonation, according to Owen Davies, the first records of ghost impersonations date back to the Reformation. Critics of Catholicism accused the church of ghost fakery to garner converts. So, oh, we're pretending to be ghosts. That proves Catholicism over Protestantism. You know, I just want to point out here, like put a little pin in this idea of pretending to be a ghost, because I think one of the major features of sheet ghosts is that they it's all about impersonating a ghost or pretending to be a ghost as a disguise or as a, a way to trick people, which we are going to talk more about in this episode. So the Catholic Church is just following tradition, as they usually do. I would just give the caveat that maybe it doesn't 
stem from it, but that sheet ghosts make it easier to pretend to be a ghost. Absolutely. That yeah. it's definitely a it's a technology, so to speak, that allows for that to happen, whereas otherwise it was not as easy for you to impersonate a ghost. The same way that spirit wrapping later becomes a means of pretending to be a ghost. It's a technology. And I'm borrowing that idea from Jack Halberstam. He uses this idea of a technology of horror. It's a weird word. You're not hearing it in your normal context. But it's perfect to describe what we're talking about here because it is an innovation cultural or otherwise it is a it is an innovation that allows for new avenues of experience and thought and to me that's what a technology is yes <laughs> the sheet innovation <laughs> so ghost impersonation using sheets can be traced to at least 1584 according to reginald scott in the discovery of witchcraft discovery with an ie <laughs> love it and that was a work meant to debunk the existence of witches which i also think is interesting this is a topic for another episode and a bit of a tangent but witches and werewolves had to have a line drawn between them originally werewolves were a kind of witch and our idea, those are such different monsters. And well, it's interesting the way that now ghosts are being lumped in with witches. Yes. And also that just like witches were lumped in with werewolves, it seems like ghosts were lumped in with other forms of undead or the return of a spirit through an animal. So a lot of these things are now very distinct in our modern day understanding of them. But it seems like they were a lot less particular and and separate. Yes, exactly. And what's also interesting is as I've, so we have a Tumblr, and as I've been curating things for the Tumblr, sometimes I see a Grim Reaper, and I'm not sure, do I count a Grim Reaper as a ghost, or are huh. they distinct monsters? Why, Grim? Why do the good die young? Well, usually because I get confused. Yeah. And... This is my segue. After the medieval period, quote, black clad ghosts were rarely seen and ghosts either appeared dressed as they were in life or, according to Francis Gross in 1787, clothed all in white, end quote. So the idea also of like, I feel like for us, the demarcation between Grim Reaper and ghost often is a sort of color coding. Yeah, I mean, it's also the function Yes, of, absolutely. Of the character, because the Grim Reaper shows up to say, hello, it's time to die. And ghosts show up for all sorts of other reasons. Although it seems like early on, these images of shrouded skeletons were very similar to the Grim Reaper in a certain way. You know, they're, they show up to remind us that death is coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. So. Right. And also, if you're not going to call the Grim Reaper the Grim Reaper, what other term are you going to use? You're often going to call it a specter. True. So moving from the medieval period to the early modern period, which is a distinction I'm kind of still learning, but essentially early modern is as we approach the Renaissance, Shakespeare. So the English language, if we're talking about England, which a lot of this research focuses on the English language is going from Middle English to early modern English, which is 
a lot more readable for the modern English speaker. Yeah, if anybody ever like refers to especially Shakespeare, it's usually Shakespeare, and they tell you that it's old English, they're wrong. Yeah. Very, very, <laughs> very wrong. Well, if you went to college and had to take your survey class on the English language, then you would have seen Beowulf turn to Canterbury Tales turn to Shakespeare. And those are the landmarks of language. And I think that helps to understand sort of culturally what's going on at the time also. Yes, exactly. So I'm just going to read a quote from Owen straight up because there is a very funny aspect of the evolution of, of sheet ghosts in here. Quote, One of the main reasons for ghosts wearing white was to do with the color of grave clothes, which were traditionally made from undyed linen, or, after 1666, wool. This was when the Burial in Woolens Acts began to come into effect, decreeing that English wool must be used for shrouds. So now we have a legal reason that's going to play into the evolution of the sheet ghost, right? That we stop seeing black ghosts as often and we start seeing white ghosts almost, like, primarily. It's an English nationalist conspiracy. <laughs> the sheet ghost is an English nationalist conspiracy. You heard it here first on Ghosts Were People too, where you want to cringe. What was our tagline? <laughs> I'm not sure. Where it's the cringe that you want. Thank you. Call that Boo-Rexit. Thank you. So anyway, we get these white shrouded nationalist ghosts. And then what? So the next thing is, um, okay, this was really interesting to me. Shroud wearing ghosts what we've seen up to now really or at least the thing that is starting to become dominant as these animal ghosts and these decaying ghosts start to peter out shroud wearing ghosts that just look like a person wearing a shroud frequently appeared in imagery of the resurrection as in the christian capital r resurrection why aren't we ascending into heaven all right the sins including the popular 17th century depiction of ghosts wearing shrouds tied at the top and loose at the feet. So I was trying to think of a way to describe this, and I'll just let Annabelle do it when I show her some pictures. But what came to my mind as I saw them was a husk of corn, like corn that has yet to be shucked. Wow. Okay, that's way more earthy. I was thinking a cake pop (laughs) with... With a little cover on it for Halloween. Okay, well, you can see how much that stands up once once I show you the pictures. Will it be a cake pop? And these images become really popular in broadside ballads, which were a form of pop culture, essentially, that had the lyrics of the ballad that you were going to sing mass-produced for anybody and often with an illustration accompanying it. So in 1680, ghosts are still appearing with this tied up corn husk cake pop shroud look. Quoting Owens again, Broadside ballads with a ghost theme such as A Godly Warning for All Maidens and The Midwives Ghost use stock iconography, 
They depict ghosts full length, shown from the side and wearing voluminous shrouds tied up in a bunch at the top of the head but loose at the feet to facilitate movement and with schematically represented faces visible in profile. And then also, this is me, not her, they were also depicted often using a lantern or a candle that they're holding in one hand and gesturing, typically pointing with the other, which I think is going to make you think of something culturally. No, does that not make you think of Hamlet's ghost? That does make sense. And I I was going to bring up Hamlet's ghost later, but I was so tied up in imagining you were so tied up in your shroud i was so tied up in my shroud imagining this image which is kind of horrifying to me in my imagination and probably is less horrifying in the art but i I was just thinking of the cake pop stick and i was thinking is there still a skeleton there and i was trying to picture the the face underneath the shroud all tied up and I I couldn't make any leaps. I was just fully in the description of that. So this is where Obi-Wan Kenobi is going to come back, <gasps> I think, because... Help me, you're my only that. hope! <laughs> these are some depictions of these, these corn husk ghosts, I'm going to keep calling them. Well, we have the ghost of Robert Greene from 1598, and then we have portrait of John Donne by Martin Droeschout from 1632. They look... Like little tamale men. <laughs> little tamale men. They do. I did. That's. This is actually very cute. So what I'm seeing in the portrait of the ghost of Robert Green is a little man in a corn husk with the the tie up above his head. His little face is sticking out of the corn husk. I should note, it's not actually a corn husk. It is a a shroud, but it looks like a corn husk. And he's actually sitting in a chair and he appears to be writing, writing. Yeah. On on a little table that has its own little shroud. I mean, tablecloth. And he's just having a little, (laughs) a little moment writing in his papers, sticking out of his little corn husk swaddle. Yeah, if I recall correctly, Robert Greene was an actor, but he also wrote a lot of pamphlets. So, and I think some of them were published posthumously. I think other people wrote pamphlets and attributed them to him. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of what's being depicted here is him writing a pamphlet posthumously. Yeah, and the John Donne one looks like a posthumous portrait, but he's wrapped up in a sheet that's been gathered above his head. It looks like his eyes are closed. So this really could be a death portrait, him on his deathbed wrapped in this shroud and and sketched by the artist. Um, and it looks a lot less cute. It's a lot more solemn, in my opinion. You really can see the details of his face and you don't see the bottom. It's It's really only from maybe the waist or chest up. So... A lot less tamale writing desk vibes <laughs> and a lot more. See, I told you I I thought about studying art <laughs> history and, and a lot more memento mori, but also just just memento on its own, a, a, yeah. a memory for for this person. And the portrait of John Donne is also depicted in a far more realist style, whereas the ghost of Robert Greene is very cartoonish for us yeah 
I'm realizing, just a, a side note, I'm realizing that this format we have is very much like watching the red carpet. But, yes. But but much more morbid. So I, I hope that... <laughs> the black carpet. I hope that it's fun and not disrespectful. But if you're worried about disrespecting John Dunn at this point, you're done. Like, it's, it's Boo. over. Boo! Who? Okay, wait. So the other thing I wanted to say about him, which is especially going to be making his death portrait funny is it you know the trope of like oh i'm really nervous to go on stage let me peek through the curtains but just my face he totally looks it like really that. looks like that except the curtain is surrounding his body for the rest of him like and um, it's giving the world is a stage it's giving swaddled in death it's giving final resting place it's giving yeah you ate <laughs> you ate. honestly you ate and it's giving it's really giving he ate <laughs> he ate dirt and worms and the context that i can give you about this is that from my understanding the john don portrait the other context here is that this is supposed to be a very devout sort of idea the the way that he is going to appear when Christ comes back to resurrect him. Uh. And there was another image, which I thought I included and totally didn't, and I don't have any of the context for it, but a couple were interred inside a church, and as is often the case, there are statues of their likeness atop their tombs. There's often, like, those statues of people, like, in repose. Have you ever seen those? Yes. But... They are in their shrouds. They are. It's not a recognizable depiction of them. They are just in their shrouds. And if I recall correctly, it's either them or John Donne was cremated. Huh. Which has some theological and eschatol- eschatological complications there of how they're going to be reconstituted when Christ returns. Yeah, as I understand, that was a very rare thing for Christians to do in yeah. those days. But it's really interesting, this idea of depicting the person tied up in their shroud as a means of not just memento mori, but also remembering the coming of Christ. I remind you I'm Jewish, so like I'm not saying this with any connection to these ideas. I think I think we're pretty clear on <laughs> yeah. where we're coming from there. So the next images I'm going to show you are the broadsides, which I described a little bit what they were. Broadsides were produced and consumed in great quantity. Images were often reused from one printing to the next, and that's crucial to uh, what Owens believes is happening here art historically. Regardless of how appropriate that image was for the next thing it's being printed on, and the difficulty of carving the fine and intricate details that certain images might require, all of these aspects of broadside printing as a medium point toward the idea that the bundle shroud ghost achieved an iconic nature or stature because of technical constraints. So again, we have technology dictating the cultural understanding of a ghost. Yeah. Here is a godly warning for all maidens. And before you describe it, I'll just show you that's the image of the ghost. The next one, a new ballad of the midwife's ghost. And so here we have two bundle ghosts who are, are they not identical? Yeah, they look 
exactly the same. They look like they could have been made from the same press. So what I'm seeing is a print and it's got the the ballad on it. It's got some other text on it. And then it has the image of the ghost, which looks like a a face with a piece of fabric tied over the head and ears, almost like a a bonnet or a um or a cloak or a, robe. a cloak. A robe. Like a hooded robe that's tight around the neck that goes all the way down in a triangular shape from the neck to the floor and s- spreads out in but rather than a tamale shape, it's like like an open corn husk almost. And the ghost is holding a candle. It doesn't look particularly ethereal or mysterious or translucent or any of those things to me. It kind of just looks like a person wearing a cloak and holding a candle. And also, if you look closely, you can see the feet at the bottom. So there are feet. There are feet. And it seems like there is a body in there even, not a skeleton. And the image for a godly warning for all maidens is near identical. It's definitely not the same exact like stamp, essentially. No. But I would think all of the description so far stands. And this ghost is approaching a couple in a bed. And then there's some sort of griffin or dragon or demon spiriting someone away on the pictorial left. And the ghost almost looks like it's tiptoeing across the floorboards with this candle almost like a person who has woken up in the middle of the night and is walking through the house with a candle to guide their way so now regarding this evolution i'm just going to quote owens again as time went on when corpses were prepared for burial they were dressed in ever more tailored grave clothes less bulky than before and similar to men's shirts and women's shifts from around 1700, long-sleeved shirts with drawstrings at wrist and neck replaced the old winding sheet. And these do look like nightgowns with hoods. Yeah. And so now we're going to see, as we move on in the burial practices, that the idea of the ghost being wrapped up in its shroud, we're now branching into the idea that we often see nowadays where the more serious ghost, if we think of maybe Ruth and Elvira back in Blythe Spirit, they're wearing clothes like they would have in life as opposed to us needing to rely on this visual idea of like, this person's dead. Remember, this person's dead. They're in a shroud. Right. And and that being said, we also have that nightgown ghost look and i think it's just because it's something that's billowy and has an ethereal i've said ethereal already but it has that uh, ethereal kind of feeling to it because it billows and so and I, i wonder if that is part of it as well yeah and that's actually exactly going to lead into this next idea so going out of this more pop cultural mass produced art when we look at higher art, we are entering the era almost of the pre-Raphaelites. This is actually not my expertise art historically. Let me just say ethereal again, because that's what the pre-Raphaelites <laughs> yeah. were all about. 
And so the thing is that when the ghost is now wearing clothing instead of something that immediately demarcates it as a ghost, you are moving away from what Owens calls the romantic idea of the magnificent horror wielded by the ghost. But certain artists, Henry Fuseli, George Romney, and John Flaxman, found other ways of making the ghost wield that sort of romantic power, and that's through a voluminous white sheet. Now let me just read this exact quote because it is so fashion. They began to sport voluminous white sheets. Groundbreaking. That's what Owen says. They sport them. <laughs> and I support the sport. <laughs> and what's really interesting is that two of these artists are specifically depicting ghosts from ancient Greek drama. So now we're also looking back even further. We and have the like, ancient Greeks wore sheets. That's exactly where we're going. Yes. So one of these is going to be of Darius, the Persian king from the Persians, and the other is of Clytemnestra from the Libation Bearers. That's from the Oresteia. And so their sheets are inspired by chitons, which are a form of ancient Greek dress that is a sheet that you have a certain amount of, like, clasp on or belt on. And in both of these images, they are lifting the sheet above their head for dramatic effect. To quote Owens, he dressed her in a white sheet, which she lifts high above her head, creating an unnerving silhouette. The voluminous nature of the sheet allowed the ghost to modify its shape and even exaggerate its height. Clytemnestra's additional height conveys authority, while her gesture suggests heightened emotion and imminent action. So the neoclassicism of the sheet ghost evinces artists, quote, turning decisively away from the gothic fixation with the rattling skeleton and the ambulant corpse. They wish to suggest mystery and awe by concealment rather than to shock with exposure. With a nod to the chitin, but with greater versatility, the loose white sheet conveyed unmistakable authority. So first we have The Ghost of Darius by George Romney unmistakable authority with this ghost for sure yeah um he almost looks like how you might picture a wizard or a king he has a long white beard that almost turns into the smoke that's in the image and he's got the sheet over his head and over his arms and is throwing his arms out to either side in a gesture that's almost like the occult sign of the enterer, right? Like you're running into a room with your arms outstretched. And you could imagine that, that he's he's covered with smoke. You can't see the bottom half of his body. And I believe he's wearing some sort of crown. I agree. Yeah, it looks like a crown. Yeah. And there are people at his feet. Supplicating themselves or something. Yeah. And a very shocked person in a cloak with her his or her i don't know they're cloaked and <laughs> um, now i'm being careful with my my gender descriptions here i um, don't know the persians the play but based on my knowledge of ancient greece the fact that this person has this thing over their head 
and this sort of dish in front of them. My guess is this some is some sort of oracle. Oracle, yeah. Well, I was going to say it looks like there should be an altar or a cauldron or some sort of mystical device in front of him that's being shrouded in smoke. And I do see a little pool that for those of you who don't know the Persians or don't know the Greeks um, (laughs) kind of looks like um, we do not support JK Rowling kind of looks like the little pool in Dumbledore's office where you stick your face in and put your memories in there. Oh, the pensive? The pensive. Yeah. Yeah. Transliberation now. Transliberation now, yesterday, and tomorrow. But it it has that kind of look to it. There's It's like a little conical pool. Yes. It's almost funnily. Yeah. Funnily. <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> I'm, I'm the worst comic relief, and I'm really sorry about this. Let's go to the next picture. Ooh. So what I think is really interesting, this is an illustration by John Flaxman of the ghost of Clytemnestra arousing the Furies. And it really looks very theatrical in the way it's drawn. It looks like it could be a depiction of either a stage picture that he witnessed or something that he is planning as a designer. But from what I can tell, neither Flaxman nor Romney were drawing from any actual specific productions that they saw. Huh. Yeah, it it does have a very Greek look to it, the hairstyles are braided and curled like you would have seen in ancient Greek and Roman The Furies statues. have snakes coming out of their hair, which is uh, typical of them. Yeah. <laughs> so typical of her. <laughs> so typical. She, she would. She would. Um, <laughs> but it also, it strikes me as almost uh, Art Deco or... Ooh, yeah. Um, I see that. Like Vienna Secession. Yeah, Vienna Secession. Which is one of my favorite eras of art it's very geometric and perhaps it's because it is a sketch but it is very simple and only the necessary lines are here but you can see for the the ghost the ghost is partially covered in what looks like a shroud Um, you can see her face you can see Perhaps the suggestion of some sort of gown, but she's holding again with her arms up, but almost more as if she's pulling the the cloak off of her head or over her head. Um, and she's right in the center of the drawing. And it's very dramatic. Yeah. The way her arms are raised, it makes almost the impression of like an M shape. It also reminds me of certain, this is so specific of a reference, but certain poses that Martha Graham takes in Lamentation, mm-hmm. which is, I think, also a ghostly thing to talk about someday, mm-hmm. but without the skin tightness of her iconic body sock. This will sound like nothing to anybody who doesn't know about <laughs> modern dance. And this illustration, I should say, is from the 1790s. The Romney was from 1770. And this is a full century after the broadsides. But we can see that there's even the way that Clytemnestra is depicted, her everything except her face is covered in a way that reminds me of our tamale ghost. Yeah, I agree. 
Now, here's the thing. Here's where I'm going to get a little bit spicy. Like a tamale? <laughs> Have you ever had a spicy tamale? I usually put the salsa on. Okay, it. got yeah. it. Our game of telephone. Coming back to our game of telephone in these listicles. People kept referring to this idea that wearing sheets came from theater. Now, Flaxman and Romney are illustrating ghosts from dramatic literature, but as I said, I don't think either of these is pulling from any specific production or reference. I think that's just in their heads and their collective unconscious culturally. Can I make a little guess here? Yeah. My guess, based on some of the things I came across in my research, is that the Victorians started this rumor because the Victorians were always making grand proclamations about the origins of things and, you know, also Columbusing a lot of culture. Like, we did it first. Charles Dickens, baby. And so my guess is that someone who wrote this listicle read one Victorian reference or they took a high school class where they read Hamlet and they were like, oh, it all started in theater. But I'm going to be honest, that was my impression of it as well. So I feel like this has become part of the common knowledge of ghosts. Yes. So I do have a really good source that is actually going to confirm this to some degree or at least substantiate some of these claims. What bothered me is that as opposed to these people who are often quoting Owen Davies or citing specific other things, they keep reciting this rehearsed claim, so to speak, that they're not giving me any, like, source for. And one of them, and I'm sure that this is just a certain, like, level on the game of telephone, though I will say that this article did feel reputable in in other ways and was well-cited in other places, it made this bizarre claim. So, in my opinion, until you get to Dickens, at least, the most famous theatrical apparition is that of Hamlet Sr. And Hamlet Sr. appears clad in a suit of armor. It says so in Shakespeare's text. He's not even wearing a sheet, bitch. And these pop history articles are citing theatrical sheet ghosts as a move away from the convention of wearing armor. That armor was too clunky and clanky on stage and that it eventually became anachronistic because people are not wearing armor as often as we're moving away from that technology in warfare. But why would armor be a convention for ghosts to wear outside of the very specific context of Hamlet? Hamlet Sr. is wearing his armor because of the socio-political situation he's in. Right. And I think the other thing about Hamlet Sr. is he is supposed to feel like something from antiquity that feels out of place, out of joint, if you will. In modern times, he even speaks in a way that that feels antiquated in order to make him feel as if he is from purgatory, from somewhere not of the everyday world. So it wouldn't really be a concern for directors of Hamlet that the ghost feels antique or outdated. Well, and it's not something that you would lift for your own ghost if you're writing something different, if you're writing something where your ghost 
is coming from a different context. I mean, as soon as the ghost is, say, a woman. I am no man. I don't know how often that happened in this period. Then she's not going to be wearing armor. You would have to assume that all of the ghosts were warrior ghosts and that there was some sort of political commentary going on right but as we read hamlet today and probably as it was intended when it was written the ghost is in that armor to show that something is rotten in the state of denmark so it it just didn't make any sense that this convention of sheet ghosts would evolve from a convention of armored ghosts i don't think that convention of armored ghosts ever existed Hamlet was pretty damn famous. That is true. That is true. And Hamlet, of course, came from earlier works itself. Right. But but I, I agree. I, I, there is a major hole in that argument. Yeah. So thank God for Sarah Outerson Murphy, who for her PhD dissertation wrote Playing Dead, Staging Corpses, Ghosts, and Statues in Early Modern Drama, which I admit i did not read the entirety of i had already read one entire book for this episode and i was not about to sit and read a dissertation but i did read the relevant sections so here's what i can tell you about sheets and performance that is actually citing her and she's actually citing primary sources due of course to the ephemeral nature of theater Records of historic design conventions are sparse and often hard to piece together. So she's already working from shreds. So, like, props to you, Outerson Murphy. (laughs) Props. Props to you, mama. In his diary, Philip Henslow lists a ghostess suit, a ghostess bodice, and a ghostess crown (laughs) among the costume pieces for a production. Though this raises the question, does this indicate a certain materiality or, like, aesthetic that's rendering these ghosts suit bodice crown? Or are these just the ghosts suit bodice and crown as in belonging to that character? We cannot know, but it's worth questioning. A play called A Warning for Fair Women, which has a very similar title to one of those ballads that I brought up earlier. Mm-hmm makes reference to unconvincing and tacky theatrical practices to indicate ghostliness. Oh, so they were throwing shade, and that's how we have records of the performances? At least we know that they were doing something in the performances that this person found to be tacky. I love that. You're tacky and I hate you. So Outerson Murphy outlines two staging practices in early modern drama, and these are like possibilities. I think they both can coexist, personally. One, ghosts wearing sheets, or two, ghosts appearing as they did in life. She says, Post-restoration theatrical representations of ghosts have often used flowing white spirit drapery to evoke a spirit-like insubstantiality and unearthly airiness. Though, by this point, shroud-clad ghosts were already prominent in visual depictions, so it's probably not arising from the theater. The theater is probably participating in an extant trend. She also writes, the frontispiece of William Sampson's The Vow Breaker, 1625 to 26, depicts the play's ghost as naked, but for a cloth, like a corpse, while two other plays actually describe their ghosts as, quote, naked. What does that mean? I don't know. 
well, naked but for a, a cloth? For that one, so then... Are they actually getting up there naked? Doubtful, right? I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> Everything I know about theater history leads me to believe that they're probably not naked, but yeah, maybe it means sheeted or maybe it means give the impression of the sheet is the only thing they're wearing. If if a woman on stage was considered risque, I can't imagine a man is allowed to be naked, you know? But it's a man. <laughs> <laughs> So although I thought about studying art history, I never thought about studying theater history. So I'm really just going out there naked to talk about this. Going out there naked on a limb. Let's mix all our metaphors. Um, So (laughs) another another quote we have from Outerson Murphy is, quote, and Thomas Randolph's The Drinking Academy, 1626 to 31, includes a character who looks so deathlike that he even without your winding sheet may pass for a ghost. So we're making reference to sheets, right? Like this sounds like sheets might have been worn on stage. We also have The Siege by William Cartwright from 1628 to 1638 in which somebody is tricked into pretending to be dead and he wears a sheet and his friends make fun of him for looking like a ghost. So Outerson Murphy concludes that certain productions may have hewed closer to the medieval interpretation of a ghost as a body, maybe decomposing with a shroud. And what I think is really interesting here is if we think back to what I was talking about with these medieval, the three dead motif where the shroud is decomposing alongside the body, therefore you can read them as being one thing. If the major theatrical component that is differentiating a living character from a spectral character is the presence of a shroud wearing a sheet, then that fabric becomes the locus of ghostliness on the stage. Then you know, the difference between me and dead me is that sheet. And that sheet holds a lot of symbolic weight. That the sheet now is ghostliness. It's a costume denoting ghostliness. Yeah. Sounds about right to me. So the next major development with regard to the sheet ghost is the incident of the Hammersmith ghost. And so now we are in the very early 1800s, and this started in late 1803 when residents of Hammersmith, which is an area of London, reported encounters with a malevolent ghost. And an eyewitness described this miscreant saying, quote, sometimes it appeared in a white sheet. (laughs) I'm sorry. And sometimes in a calfskin dress with horns on its head and glass eyes. Which sounds, you were talking about the um, medieval ghosts sounding so pagan before. And this takes us right back there, I think, with some of these aesthetics. Very much so. And the Hammersmith ghost continued to terrorize residents until 1804. So really only a year. Not even. Yeah, Yeah. it's only a matter of months, I think. Yeah. Um, And armed... (laughs) Can I just start that over? Yeah, do it. And so the Hammersmith ghost continued to terrorize residents until 1804, 
armed patrols were set up to catch the spectral impersonator. And on January 3rd, 1804, one of those patrolmen, Francis Smith, fatally shot Thomas Millwood. Thomas Millwood was a bricklayer, and he worked clad in all white, including his apron. And he had been mistaken for a ghost previously, according to his wife, if I recall correctly. I was also mentioning this to my mom earlier today, and she mentioned that bricklaying would probably get you really covered in dust, too. Hmm. So Smith, the shooter, was convicted of willful murder, and his sentence of hanging and dissection? Ooh was commuted to one year hard labor. Now, I don't know. I've learned a certain amount about the death penalty in England around this time, and I do know there was a certain amount of dissection as a means of kind of like dehumanizing yeah. the person you were killing. Yeah. And I do also know that one year hard labor, I think we mentioned this in the spiritualism episode, was not a lighter sentence it was essentially intended to kill you right but fascinating things all around what i also learned about the hammersmith ghost is that this court case actually had ramifications on the uk legal system regarding whether acting on a mistaken belief was sufficient defense for a criminal charge because smith was set out to catch this ghost impersonator and believed that this was the ghost impersonator. So he had the reason to believe that this was the right person, essentially. That's interesting. Uh, I, I don't have anything profound to say other than Freemasons be like, we are the sons of the Masons you couldn't shoot. In the words of Dr. Phil... Thank you for that. <laughs> we are the sons of the Masons you couldn't dissect. <laughs> <laughs> so here is... <laughs> Please, somebody dissect us. Look I was, at these... I was saving that for far too long, but I w for what I really wanted to say is that it's fascinating how cases like this we, we keep running into situations where the debunking of ghosts or the attempt to catch ghosts or what prove have you, ghosts. prove ghosts, ends up bringing in cultural conversations and legal issues that are of wider importance yeah it has consequences it has ramifications beyond what you think to be this very woo woo occult sphere right yeah which of course i mean if you take a second and remember that like the woo woo occult sphere was most of people's life like most people were devout to some sort of religion and most people were wearing sheets up until pretty recently so <laughs> 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 so let's get back to Owens. So Owens writes, The Hammersmith ghost was soon exposed as a hoax, but in the meantime, a print claiming to represent the specter was circulated, which helped to reinforce the white-sheeted ghost look. It shows the otherwise unremarkable figure raising its arms menacingly within the sheet in what had become the standard visual shorthand for ghosts. 
and one that has persisted to the present day. Because if I ask you, once again, picture a ghost and it's not a pirate, its arms are usually, like if you're looking at a Halloween decoration, it usually has its arms raised. I think partially because like anatomically the sheet doesn't have arms, so you like are giving it arms. I just feel like she's so right in that that is such a part of the visual motif of a sheet ghost. Yeah, it adds drama, it adds dimension to something that otherwise would look like an empty husk. (laughs) (laughs) An empty tamale. Yeah. What I find confusing as I was trying to understand what's going on with the Hammersmith ghost is that Wikipedia, so I I probably could have gone further, but I, I, I love you guys, but I was not going to put more work into this uh he read a whole damn book for this episode <laughs> I, you know i hate reading all i did was think about going to art school so <laughs> wikipedia claims that the hoax was pulled by an elderly shoemaker trying to scare his apprentice after his apprentice told the shoemaker's children a ghost story i don't think that adds up and i want to say that the reason is like, once it turns into this social phenomenon where, like, people are scared, there's, like, claims of people thinking that, like, he's grabbing them in, in graveyards and stuff. And some of that could be mass hysteria, obviously. The stakes are so low, right? And wouldn't you just localize that ghost impersonation to just terrorizing your apprentice and not the entire people of Hammersmith? It just feels... That sounds like someone went back and created some sort of story. Yeah, I need to do more reading on this. And I would love to do a whole episode on ghost impersonation because there's more of a phenomenon here than we're going to get to, you know, while we're just talking about sheet ghosts. Like, this is just important because the Hammersmith ghost, at least in England, because that's where Owen's research is centered, was very influential in developing this. And boy, we we don't even just have one guy dying from the Hammersmith ghost. Right. So Owens asserts that the Hammersmith ghost scared one woman to death. While Lucas Riley writes, quote, in the 1830s, a ghost impersonator was tried for manslaughter because he literally frightened an 81-year-old woman to death. And... That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Tried for scaring someone to death. (laughs) There is more seriousness to ghost impersonation than you might initially assume. Because already we talked earlier about how there were thieves who would dress as ghosts to scare people so they could steal things. And if this person is running around being a public nuisance, it does at least make logical sense. Whether it makes legal sense, I'm not quite so sure. And we don't know whether this person was sentenced, right? We just know they were tried. Yeah, this is this was one of those pop history articles. Uh-huh. But continuing on this thread of ghost impersonation, most ghost impersonators were men, Women's ghost shenanigans mostly followed the schema of the Fox sisters with pretending to talk to the ghosts, not so much pretending to be the ghosts. And Riley writes, 
Most accounts of ghost impersonating, both modern and historical, gloss over the fact that men often used their ghostly cover to intimidate, harass, sexually assault, and even rape women. So, the sheet, as we can think of with also the context of the Ku Klux Klan, gives you a certain anonymity and a certain means of committing certain heinous acts. Yeah. Well, it's it's like scream or other various costumed yeah the perpetrators yeah scooby-doo well not scooby-doo but so we do have these images of the hammersmith ghost they're pretty similar to one another and these images are not singularly as impactful perhaps but they both show a man in a white sheet with arms raised one of them has a beard. The other one looks a little bit more like a clean-shaven founding father. <laughs> and on the left, we have the bearded man ghost just completely terrorizing a number of humans and animals who are so afraid that they're running at a, would you call that a 45-degree angle? Like, yeah, they are, I think they, right. It's... They're standing at an angle at which a real human being would actually fall or running at an angle <laughs> to get away from Unless you're Michael him. Jackson. Yeah, exactly. And they're not. So. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Michael Jackson was not alive in 1804. <laughs> the horse is afraid. The people are afraid. There are people hiding. The other image is just the solitary ghost. And he's holding his cloak above his head and it almost you can really see the different layers of the sheet and the cloak in this one yeah he kind of has sleeves going on yeah which are like if so his a his arms are disproportionately long but b his hands are even covered yeah actually in both images their arms are extremely long well i was thinking so the image on the left is a caricature and the image on the right is an engraving and in the caricature, if you look at his feet, they look maybe like he's standing on stilts because everyone else say, has detailed shoes and, and like garters kind of <laughs> no feet. Um, but he seems to be standing on stilts. Now, his arms are proportioned to the length of the stilts, but it's a caricature also. Yeah, it looks much more like a costume because of those stilts, because of the other people who are depicted who are in street clothes it looks like somebody who is purposefully dressed up to scare other people which goes along with how the story was being told at the time yeah and what's also interesting is in his attempt to intimidate in both of these pictures he has his arms raised as owens described And it's a very similar pose to the one that Darius was in in that earlier image and that Clytemnestra was in in that earlier image. So this is definitely becoming a stock ghost pose. This is a thing I've been really excited for. So, according to Owens, a trend arose in the mid to late 1800s where ghost stories focused greatly on the clothes the ghost wore. In some cases, apparel was used to verify the identity of the apparition. So, like, the ghost is wearing clothes that you know are your loved ones. Mm. In other 
instances, witnesses used their clear memories of details of the clothing. For example, one woman distinctly remembered seeing the seams on the back of her husband's coat as an indication that their account was genuine. So in his pamphlet, and pamphlets are very easily disseminated, very easily written, anyone can publish them and they get spread really widely. We also don't have a lot of them, they don't survive as well. George Cruikshank wrote in a pamphlet, A Discovery Concerning Ghosts with a Rap at the Spirit Rappers from 1863. That is a winning title. All right. I just, here's the director in me. Please give all those capitals all you got. All that uppercase that he's writing in. (sighs) 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 From all I have been able to learn... It does not appear that in the days from Pliny the Younger down to the days of Shakespeare and from thence down to the present time that anyone has ever thought of the gross absurdity and impossibility of there being such things as ghosts of wearing apparel, iron armor, walking sticks and shovels. No, not one except myself, and this I claim as my discovery concerning ghosts, and that therefore it follows as a matter of course that ghosts cannot, must not, dare not, for decency's sake, appear without clothes, and as there can be no such things as ghosts or spirits of clothes... Why, then, it appears that the ghosts never did appear and never can appear, at any rate, not in the way in which they have been hitherto supposed to appear. Isn't it so good? That's amazing. Scathing. Scathing. I mean, that's a pamphlet for the ages. And it was accompanied... By an illustration by Thomas Williams called The Ghosts of Stockings, which depicts two stockings hanging on a clothesline. And they're they're a little bit stretched out. And yeah, that, that's about it. <laughs> and so, okay, there is a Tumblr blog that I really like. Uh, Tumblr user Real Footage. And they post screenshots from what I understand to be either like really old occult websites or forums a lot of the time without commentary. And I was looking for content for our blog, and this screenshot is very similar to George Cruikshank. Why ghosts wander in cloths but not naked? When people die and become ghosts, do their cloths become ghosts too? This person's asking the real questions. The real questions. I think it's so funny that Crookshank believes that he's the only person asking this. And I mean, we were just talking about whether ghosts can be naked when we were talking about Utterson Murphy. We were also just talking about what the hell it means when in the list of costumes it says ghost. A ghost spotted. Yeah. So this is a ongoing thread. Yeah. And so what about the sheet? What about the sheet? Indeed. I feel like we've actually touched upon some of these ideas. I I wanted to bring a literary element into this conversation. And so something I did not know is that there is a ghost narrative in 
Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Were you aware of this? Okay, so Uncle Tom's Cabin was an extremely popular play. There was a play of the novel made in the 1800s, and I pretended to read it for uh, Drama to Modern Age, but I didn't actually read it, and I've never read the novel. I pretended to read the novel in college, so I I didn't – this is at the end. Spoiler alert. There's a really interesting article by Faith, I believe it's Faith Lou, called An Authentic Ghost Story Manipulating the Gothic in Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so if this is interesting to you, you should definitely check it out. It's open, free to read on the internet. And basically, it talks about how there are a lot of gothic tropes and themes that come into the story, uh, particularly surrounding the women in Uncle Tom's Cabin. But the reason that I'm bringing this up now is that there is a character named Cassie, and as part of her plan to escape from the plantation where she has been enslaved, she invents a haunting in the attic of the plantation, and she uses various tricks, like creating breezes and blowing out candles and all sorts of things like that, in order to convince her enslaver that the place is haunted. And the climax of this trickery is her dressing up as a sheet ghost. And it ends with him being so terrified by what she does that he turns to drink and drinks himself to death, I believe. He's so frightened. And so there's all sorts of interesting ways we can interpret this character. Uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin is clearly a problematic text. And one of the greatest criticisms of it, besides the fact that it was written by a white woman, is that it creates this sort of moral high ground where the enslaved African-Americans who are not willing to do unchristian things like killing people are the ones who are celebrated more. And this character, Cassie, at first tells Tom, I, I believe, that she wants to get the master drunk and kill him with an axe. And Tom, yeah, and and it's really kind of badass. But Tom is like, no, don't do that. Like, it's unchristian. Save your soul. And she's like, okay, I'll scare him to death. Um, (laughs) And so here's a quote from Faith Lou. While most Gothic heroines seek escape through the discovery of truth, Cassie seeks it through deception, becoming the author rather than the recipient of Gothic terror. So I think that's a really cool spin on this and also a a nod to the power of assuming the sheet ghost form. When we were talking about how men often used the sheet in this era, like or a little earlier, I guess, in order to commit crimes like rape and stealing and murder and scaring old ladies to death. The fact that we now have a woman taking on this role, let alone an African-American woman, and literally scaring her master to death so that she can escape, I think that's a cool story. 
You heard it here. Ghost impersonation can be praxis. (laughs) So another thing that is interesting about Uncle Tom's Cabin within the context of the discussion we've been having is that Harriet Beecher Stowe makes a sort of humorous comment about how although the characters in the story don't know it, they are imitating Shakespeare because that is the origin of the sheet ghost. I kid you not. Oh my God. I have quotes. So this is a quote from this scene in Uncle Tom's Cabin. There were abundance of full-length portraits of the ghost, abundantly sworn and testified to, which, as is often the case with portraits, agreed with each other in no particular except the common family peculiarity of the ghost tribe, the wearing of a white sheet. The poor souls were not versed in ancient history and did not know that Shakespeare had authenticated this costume by telling how, quote, the sheeted dead did squeak and gibber in the streets of Rome. Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 1, lines 115 to 116. That is so, that's so funny. That's so weird. I, I, the language, the language is a little uncomfortable, but I, I knew that I was in for that. Well, it, yeah, it is Uncle Tom's cabin <laughs> where we get the phrase Uncle Tom. Oh, so, yeah. wow. Uh, yeah, but so it, it is, it's a little bit, um, not a little bit, it's a lot of bit patronizing. Yes. And also wrong <laughs> because that's what we've been talking about this whole time. I mean, there's some truth in it, right? Right. The but, sheeted dead, I mean, right. sure did say that. Yeah. How how could they, how funny that they didn't know they were reenacting Shakespeare because that's uh, the origin of mass hysteria around sheet ghosts. <laughs> but what's also particularly funny to me about this is if this was written in the 1850s, then this was not long after the Hammersmith, Hammersmith the Hammersmith ghost. And so... I imagine that Harriet Beecher Stowe was familiar with that story. Hmm. Maybe. I mean, it was over the, it it was across the pond. Yeah. It might've been hyper local. I don't know how much currency would have gotten in the U S but it's still worth speculating. And I would love to have had a resource that was more cross cultural than being so specifically English because I'm sure that there were comparable things in the U.S. You know, it's interesting. Actually, I could have looked into this. There's this wonderful book. I cannot remember who it's by at the moment, At Day's Close. And it's about the history of nighttime in the early modern period. And I wonder if, because he talks quite a bit about the culture around arson and the cultural around, and the cultural, and the culture I'm so used to saying cultural. And the culture around burglary. I'm on a baby. That I wonder if he mentions ghost impersonation in those contexts. That'd be interesting to read about. And also, weren't a lot of people practicing, is it called biphasic sleeping at that time also? He is 
this person I can't remember the name of is the researcher best known for putting uh, that forth actually yeah okay so it would make a lot of sense if there were people impersonating ghosts knowing that there were sort of sleepy people doing quiet activities in the middle of the night Stu, what are you doing making chocolate pudding it's four o'clock in the morning why on earth are you making chocolate pudding because i've lost control of my life yeah by candlelight or no light mm-hmm. so you're even mm. more susceptible yeah that's actually a really interesting thing as we think about ghosts in general just historically is the way that lighting works with all of this yeah so let's since we're in the 1800s now Let's make some connections to spirit photography, which, as I'm sure if you're listening to this, you know, we have an entire episode on spirit photography. It's episode one, right? Episode numbering our episodes is confusing because we have syllabus day as number zero it's number zero then we have spiritualism and then it's second part is spirit photography. Okay, so part two, episode one. So sheets and spirit photography. Spirit photographs by Frederick Hudson depicted the ghostly figures, quote from Owens, heavily draped in pale fabric, reviving an older convention of the white sheeted ghost. Which like how much older, Owens? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, again, when is the origin of this? It seems like everybody comes up with their own origin date for sheet ghosts. But if you look at spirit photography, you're going to see a bunch of examples of people wearing sheets that look like shrouds or look like some of the other examples we've discussed today. And it's there, baby. Except with your boy Mumler. Because Mumler, as opposed to Hudson, generally depicts his ghosts as human and recognizable in their street clothes and part of owens's argument is that by making these ghosts these these swaths of fabric it's a little bit easier to doctor the photo and make it look more ghostly because you can't just say oh wait that's the photo of Abraham Lincoln right. that everyone has seen before, and yet that's what shows up behind Mary Todd Lincoln. Right. Or just, you know, that's my mother in her mother of the bride dress. I know that photo. Right. You know? That's the only photograph that was ever taken of my mother yeah. before this day. And then speaking of some other spirit photographers, William Hope's ghosts were often veiled, and the ectoplasm photos of Ada Dean, which are wonderful to look at especially in their fakeness Mm -hmm. they look like beautiful art pieces generally have a textile quality these kind of like almost like you can't tell if it's fabric or supposed to be a cloud around the faces it's not so much draped over their heads one example we're looking at which is from frederick hudson looks very very much like what we have described in the prints engravings and drawings from earlier it's a person uh, one of the photographs you can vaguely see the face of the person they're draped in a gauzy fabric in an almost mary magdalene type of way it it looks a lot like that illustration earlier of john dunn yeah 
Yeah. Like, except for it doesn't have the little top knot. It's rather pious looking. And the image on the right, both of these photographs are from 1872. This ghost seems to be beckoning toward the sitters in a way reminiscent of the ghosts in the broadsides where it's kind of pointing. And you can really see the texture of the fabric in this one. And it looks very, very sheet like. Yeah. And what's also interesting is both of these photographs have Georgiana Hewton and she was a medium and she was also a visual artist. There's also a child in one of these with her and he's like reclining away from the ghost. What's also interesting, I think about this a lot for reasons I need not specify right now, but the ghost in both of these photos is on the pictorial right. I'm sure that that's not a constant throughout Hudson's work, but it is interesting the way that you have the sitter approaching the ghost, kind of, if you are reading it left to right, as we do in English. Mm. And that's just a fascinating detail that I don't think really means anything. But if it's there, it's there. So this is really what I've I've pointed this out a couple times. We started The Three Living and The Three Dead, and I've argued that the shroud and the skeleton are one body because they're decomposing together. I, I've restated this even. And then when we get to the theatrical traditions of early modern England, we have the sheet being the lone thing that signifies living from unliving actors on stage. The person with sheet equals ghost, person without sheet not equals ghost equation. By the 19th century, the sheet was such an identifiable feature of the ghost that the sheet alone could signify ghostliness, which enables hoaxes such as the Hammersmith ghost, the exploits within Uncle Tom's cabin, and the spirit photography of Frederick Hudson. All of this is predicated on this being a familiar trope, the sheeted undead. The 20th century would further erode the connection between the corpse its shroud, the sheet, and the ghost. Though in the 20th century and beyond, we can find a wide variety of visual depictions of ghosts, the image of the sheet ghost is inescapable. At this point, the typical sheet ghost consists only of a sheet with no organic material underneath. (laughs) And I would argue that this enables the image of the sheet ghost to make its way into lighter forms of pop culture because we no longer see it as intimately associated with death and decay and corpses, which scares people, obviously. Um, We don't like to think about mortality, especially in the U.S., but it, it allows now for the sheet ghost to exist on its own, which can be a lot sillier and can also play with antics that come from the Hammersmith ghost of disguise and things like that. So are you telling me that the iconicity of the sheet ghost and the way that it distances us from death allows us to find that scary equals funny? Yes, Patrick. (laughs) It's going to be an internal meme. Okay, I'm so excited for this. (laughs) So, 
M.R. James takes the apparition that is more sheet than ghost to its logical conclusion in his 1904 short story, Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. In this story, a professor goes away for a golfing vacation and finds himself followed by a mysterious figure. The witness eventually describes the specter as having, quote, a horrible and intensely horrible face of crumpled linen. Ugh, we hate crumpled linen. There seemed to be absolutely nothing material about it save the bedclothes of which it had made itself a body. Get a fucking iron. <laughs> in, in this story, he finds himself pursued by this apparition that as far as the reader ever learns, is just sheet. It's just animate cloth, basically. This is literally a sheet ghost. Sheets! And while the story does, like, it's definitely a gothic story, he summons the ghost with an old haunted whistle, and there's ruins involved, it's not so much about whoever was there. So... James McBride eventually provides an illustration for A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, of this final moment where the professor is encountered by this ghost. Once again, the pose, very similar as far as what the ghost is doing with its arms raised. Right. If there are arms, it's the suggestion of arms. <laughs> yes. Um, but now it looks like this Dementor that is about to suck the life out of this poor terrified man who is putting up his hands to defend himself and crumpled up against his desk he's as small as he could be in the picture yeah and it it like all it is having read the short story it's so good are the bedclothes of the other there's two beds in his hotel room So it's not even a sheet that has anything to do with this deceased person. It's just almost like being a ghost allows it to possess fabric. Right. And and there's there's so much you could think about there with loneliness and the fact that there's an empty bed in there and that he's alone in this hotel room. There's no company. Instead, there's only the haunting of the empty bed. (laughs) And from there, I mean, this is as late as I could get any like specific chronology. She ghosts explode in pop culture. Imagery of them just shows up everywhere. This is going to be Far less intensely academic than anything prior. We also cannot create an extensive list of these occurrences. It's just too common, but we're going to highlight some of the good ones. (laughs) Yeah, especially because we try to save things for the future. But this is going to be a little bit more about like the cultural currents The She-Ghost becomes extremely popular in Halloween, as I'm sure any listener knows. It was a common sight on holiday postcards in the early 20th century, where its connections to the holiday were often made manifest through depictions of ghosts with jack-o'-lantern heads. This is really where we get all of that Halloween imagery that we know today. We have the sheet ghosts, we have the pumpkins, we have the black cats, we have the scary moons, we have uh, all of that stuff. And it's all coalescing, and, and what's really fun, I love those old postcards so much. Me too. And you can see the things happening in different combinations. Yeah. Even. Yeah. Sheet ghost Halloween costumes 
obviously were easy to create or acquire in the era of homemade costumes. What could be easier than throwing a sheet on your kid and then they go run away? Beautiful night. (laughs) 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 Photos of children. (laughs) Photos of children dressed as sheet ghosts survive from throughout the 20th century and the notion quickly bled into Halloween media. So... Obviously, kids are dressing up as sheet ghosts. Postcards are being made of sheet ghosts. And so chicken or the egg, you know, it's it's all part of Halloween culture. We probably won't dive into as much visual analysis at this point. But Norman Rockwell in 1920. What medium did he do? Illustrated a child scaring her grandfather in Grandfather Frightened by Jack-O-Lantern. It's the cover of the Saturday Evening Post, and the grandfather is on the pictorial left. The child is on the pictorial right once again. The dog is between the grandfather's legs and seems to understand the ruse. Probably grandpa's playing nice and and playing along. Did anyone hear a moan just then? I did. Did it go like this? Oh. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't hear. I'd just like to cut a hole in your... (laughs) In your sheet, in your bullshit, and say that in the (laughs) James McBride illustration for Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, the ghost is on the pictorial left and the man is on the pictorial right. That's true. And I I shouldn't have cut a hole in your sheet is not really the imagery I'm going for. (laughs) That's what the Hasidim say before they want to (laughs) shtup. I know. I'm not coming on to you. Uh, Let's look at more vintage postcards. So these, I mean, these vary in their depictions. What's interesting is that... The ghost is on the pictorial left. Oh, my God. What's interesting is that sometimes it's clear that it's somebody dressing up, and sometimes they're going for more of a supernatural motif. In one of these, we have the child having removed her jack-o'-lantern mask did she just have the pumpkin on her head i cannot tell you but and i don't even know if it's a girl children were so androgynous in the early 20th century yeah very much like medieval king (laughs) (laughs) and in one of these we have some children who look like little cupid dolls using a sheet on like some sort of stake to scare a kid looking in a mirror Whereas in another one, there are boys holding jack-o'-lanterns. They all have jack-o'-lanterns in them, so we know that it's Halloween, as if they don't say Halloween greetings. Um, Greetings. (laughs) As if they don't say Halloween greetings. But this one, the ghost, looks more supernatural. I think it even has a skull face, if you look close. Yeah. And... I almost forgot to mention, because it's in this image, but another trope, a witch flying across the moon is in this one as well. I also really like that these scared boys, their hair is definitely standing on end. You mean they didn't just spike it? (laughs) More fashion. (laughs) We're looking at some ghost costumes. I, I found all of these on Google. You can find them on Google yourself. But it is interesting the ways that they differ from one to the next. Yeah, so on the left, we're looking at a ghost costume where the from the neck down, it is one sheet and it has a little 
scaredy cat and a couple of bats on it affixed to the front. And then the head looks like it's a, a pillowcase or a bag Maybe with a two sack holes. from flower. A flower sack with two holes on the eyes. And it gives kind of like a, a Maleficent crown <laughs> type. He's uh, also, he's holding a molded plastic jack-o'-lantern probably for his candy to go in. But he's also holding, he, I say, they are holding a skull in the other hand, like some yeah, sort of skull toy. It almost looks like paper mache. The middle photo, which is from 54, that first one is from the 40s, they also have separate things on their heads from their bodies. They look like little white burglars. Yeah. And I mean, like, as in the the <laughs> the, the mask is yeah, white. Yeah. And what's also interesting is I'm reminded of the quote from Owens describing the shift in burial dress because one of these, I think, is a little boy and he's wearing what kind of looks like a night shirt that just goes down to – I don't know, maybe it's a girl, but it's a nightshirt that goes maybe to the mid-calf, and the other is wearing what is clearly a dress that goes down to the floor. And it reminds me, she's talking about the difference how men were buried in shirts and women were buried in shifts. Hmm. Yeah. And then on the right, we have a couple of examples of cake pop. I'm saying on the we're we're talking about this as if they're looking at the screen with us, but we have three images on the screen here, and we're going from left to right because that's how you read, <laughs> as you so as you enlightened us yeah, earlier. Thanks. Yeah, we have cake pop ghost boys. We can see that they're wearing trousers, but then over the top are sheets that have been gathered at the neck with some string, and there are holes cut for the eyes, the mouth, and the nose to give an absolutely horrifying effect. Well, the ghost on our logo has a nose hole as well. That's true. The Spectropia ghost. And then in 1945, which is in the midst of this, Casper makes his debut. Mother, meet our new friend Casper. And in his cartoon Puss in Booze, he is shown taking off his sheet to take a bath. Do you remember? Correct. Yes. And then he puts his sheet back on after he gets out of the bath. And I think he's invisible or partially he's invisible, invisible yeah. when he takes his bath. And so when he puts the sheet back on, he becomes the visible ghost. again. I mean, it really doesn't get much more clear cut than this. The sheet is the ghost at this point. Yeah. And then in the 1960s, this is where we really start to see sheet ghosts take off in cartoons as a sort of assumed part of pop culture that anyone would understand. And maybe one of the most famous cartoon sheet ghosts is in the 1966 Halloween special, It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Whenever I told somebody that I was working on this, they they asked, oh, so Charlie Brown, right? Exactly. You're going to talk about Charlie Brown. Yeah. And so we're going to talk about Charlie Brown. But just really briefly, I'm sure we could find some way to analyze this, but I don't think it's really necessary. Basically, Charlie Brown and the kids dress up as ghosts, right, by putting sheets over their heads. And they do a little craft moment. They're cutting out the holes for the eyes. Oh, good grief. Is that you, Patty? No. Where is Charlie Brown? Here I am. I had a little trouble with the scissors. And humorously puts holes all over the sheet costume. It's actually like... 
it just goes to show that it's become so iconic that now we can have like a postmodern depiction of it where we like question and like interrogate the way that the sheet ghost appears and like it's still recognizable even though it has all of these like holes even though it's only supposed to have like two or three or four if you can't tell i'm parodying like myself so ingratiated in the cultural landscape that the children assume that that will be the costume that they create and the outcast is not the ghost but the boy who cannot emulate the ghost I hate this because, like, that was actually the analysis I wanted to yeah, say. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay, but let's move on to Scooby Dooby Doo. Where are you? 1969, Groovy. We have Phantom from the episode Hassle in the Castle. And this is a disguise for Bluestone the Great. As you're probably familiar with Scooby Doo's whole concept, it's that. Who be who? (laughs) The whole concept of Scooby-Doo is that they are debunking these ghosts. And this is another episode that we want to create. But we'll talk about just Phantom in Hassle in the Castle for now. This is a ghost disguise. But the fun twist to this disguise is that Bluestone the Great is an ex-magician. He's wanted in six states. And the reason he's dressing up as a ghost is because he's trying to scare people away while he is looking for buried treasure. He doesn't want anyone else to find it first. So he is putting on a sheet and doing things like floating through the air and walking through the walls. The walking through the wall scene really freaks out Scooby and the gang because they can't figure out how a person could possibly do that. And so at the end, the floating trick is exposed when the phantom is unmasked. He's been using wires to float around. Easy. (gasps) What? I know. Easy old theater trick, right? But this is the fun part of the episode. When asked how he walks through walls, the magician exclaims, That's my best trick! It was merely an illusion done with trick mirrors and a special projector. I could cast my image anywhere I wanted. And by stepping away from the mirror, it appears that I walk through walls. I must admit, Mr. Bluestone, you're a good magician, but a bad phantom. And so he's able to act like a ghost because he is a master magician. The other thing that's really funny is the other image you have pulled is a meme right now (laughs) where Fred has unmasked Bluestone. And though in the other image, it looks like a sheet ghost where it is one contiguous sheet. Here he has a mask that he can pull off for the Scooby-Doo trick. And that is a separate part of the costume like those 40s 50s and 20s costumes that we were looking at so that's just such a funny detail but so i mean you might have seen this image more recently than you thought yeah and i i did recognize it when i found it but i'm only well versed in a small quantity of memes (laughs) you know that's just scratching the surface obviously but those are a few really 
important examples of sheet ghosts in 1960s cartoons. So now let's talk about contemporary horror, contemporary film, where sheet ghosts show up there. So at this point, where we get into what I would really unironically call a postmodern moment, we're going to take something that started out scary, then was twisted to be cutesy, and twist it back around to scary again. The iconic nature of the sheet ghost has made it a popular reference in horror media, something immediately recognizable as cutesy and kitsch with an undercurrent of Memento Mori. In Halloween, which is a movie with no ghosts, 1978, one of our first slashers up there with Black Christmas, Laurie Strode spies Michael Myers hiding between clotheslines of pristine white laundry. Now, that is not a sheet ghost. But two things. One, it's been chosen. This shot is one of the most iconic shots in the whole movie. And the stark contrast between our killer and these white sheets is definitely intentional and the whole movie is twisting halloween as an idea see anything you like (laughs) what's the matter can i get your ghost bob (laughs) and i would also argue and this discussion doesn't have to last too long but if you know anything about that movie it starts with Michael killing someone as a child, and then he returns to the town as an adult. He is the specter, the shape, haunting their town. And so I think that there is a certain, whether it's intentional or not, visual shorthand when he appears between these white sheet clotheslines. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And uh, just to lighten it up, Let's talk about Beetlejuice next. Let's talk about what? Beetlejuice. <laughs> that was two. Let's talk about Be- Beetle- the 1988 <laughs> film uh, in which the sheet is definitely used as a gag, right? So two real ghosts put on sheets in order to try and frighten the Dietzes who are living in their house. And I have a a quote from this scene um, because it's actually one of the most quoted scenes in the movie, but the context is all around the inability of the sheet ghosts to scare Lydia. Are you the guys hiding out in the attic? We're ghosts. What do you look like under there? Aren't you scared? I'm not scared of sheets. Are you gross under there? Are you Night of the Living Dead under there? Like all bloody veins and pus? Night of the what? Living Dead, it's a movie. You know, if I had seen a ghost at your age, I would have been scared out of my wits. You're not gross. Why are you wearing sheets? We're practicing. You can see us without the sheets. Of course I can see you. Well, how is it that you see us and nobody else can? One of the things that I really love about this scene is that Lydia asks... Are you gross under there? Which is something that we, I I don't, I can't say that it's unique to Beetlejuice, but it is something that in our discussion hasn't come up since the medieval period, really. Right. It's something we've kind of tried to strip from the sheets. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's very Burton to bring that sort of a thing up. And the thing that I love about this is that 
because it's fucking Tim Burton, they're not just white sheets. They have these sort of Victorian damask prints. Yeah. In fact, I think there's a line about how... Your mother's going to kill you when she sees you cut holes in her $300 sheets. And Ghostface, it's in the name, the killer from the Scream franchise, which debuted in 96, combines the imagery of Edward Munch's The Scream with the Grim Reaper. Neither of those is explicitly a ghost, but his name obviously betrays a ghostly reference. And, I mean, he's wearing a sheet. And Scream in and of itself invents a whole new costume, because that costume... Yeah, that's a conversation for another day. Well, I, I'll just say, as a child of the 90s, I saw the costume before I saw the movie because I was too young for the movie. But there were definitely little tiny elementary school kids running around with the scream masks. Oh, absolutely. And permutations, knockoffs, or things that predated it. Right. Because I do believe that the movie took inspiration from an existing costume and then kind of codified it. Absolutely. At the climax of It Follows from 2014, one of the teens drapes a white sheet over the invisible entity in order to make it visible so that they can attack it. What's also really interesting is that in, I believe, one or two scenes prior, the entity, which can be seen by our protagonist, Jay, but not by her friends, it's taken the guise of her deceased father. You won't know that. It's not remarked upon in the, like, script at all, but there are photos of him in the in the set dressing. And so there's definitely something going on there. And it's, it's such a beautiful shot, this sheet ghost getting shot point blank, falling into the pool, and then all this blood billows mm. out of it. And then in a more poignant yet quirky movie a ghost story have you seen that this one i haven't seen but when i started doing research for this episode and i was finding all the listicles i thought okay let's see if youtube has anything to offer so i typed in sheet ghosts into the youtube search bar and this was one of the first things that came up so it's an a24 movie from 2017 and it is all about the spirit of a husband coming to visit his home and his wife and he looks like the classic sheet ghost but it's very arty it's very the the trailer is very emotional and has sort of heartfelt indie music in the background and so it feels like they are recognizing the cultural importance of that image as something we typically see now as Halloween imagery, which is associated with children and even mid-century kitsch, and using that as a device to tell a heavier story. It's very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'd like to see the film, but... Yeah, I did not watch it, but... I was very aware of it. If I can, if I recall correctly, someone I knew at some point had a poster of it on their wall. It seems like the kind of movie that dares you to laugh at it because it's probably going to make you cry. Yeah. And what's also interesting is I didn't watch it. I didn't even watch the trailer. Mm-hmm. So 
kudos to you, Dos. <laughs> but from my understanding from the Wikipedia synopsis, the sheet that he drapes himself in is from his hospital bed where he dies. Ugh. So it's let's take us right back to where we started with the medieval burial practices of wrapping people up just in your deathbed sheet. I wasn't even thinking of it as being so dark in as much as just like makeshift. You know, this is what I have right here <laughs> to right. dress myself myself up in. I don't know what the emotional affect is. We build our legacy piece by piece and maybe the whole world will remember you or maybe just a couple of people, but you do what you can to make sure you're still around after you're gone. You should go and watch the trailer. Maybe we'll put a little clip of the trailer in here so you can hear it. But it feels heartbreaking. (laughs) (laughs) It's like losing your spouse, but make it Wes Anderson a little bit. It's not it doesn't have that particular style, but there is a quirky artiness to it. Yeah, I get that. I know what that style is like. I I can imagine. I mean, will I watch it? We'll see. (laughs) <laughs> we'll see who's will <laughs> all right folks well this is <laughs> so we i'm sorry i'm laughing because we pulled up a slide i've i've had a, a busy month we've also recorded later in the day than we usually do that's right because again a busy month It says a general list of (laughs) sheet ghost media. I think this was supposed to be my part. I did add some things throughout uh, the planning of this episode, but it literally just said, (laughs) says, it literally just says, it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, 1966, comma, E.T., 1982. And then it's blank. Like, that's the whole list. We were still deciding who was talking about what, and I was just trying to leave crumbs. Like, like leave something that, like, oh, okay, this one's incomplete. Maybe I'll fill that. Yeah, I appreciate that. It didn't happen. Is um, that the last yeah, line? Yeah, that's the last line. I was, oh, no. I was leading us up into, like, a wrap-up. Okay, that's where I was going. Let's wrap it up, because this list is not going to take us any further, and we've been recording for over two hours. Let's wrap this up in a sheet and toss it in a six-feet grave. Oh, I thought you were going to say and... Toss it in the... Wait, okay, let me start it over. Let's wrap this up in a sheet and toss it in the... <laughs> Wait, wait. He's like, what do you put tamales in? Oh no, that's not what I was gonna say at all. Hold on. Let's wrap this up in a sheet, pour in some detergent, select a spin cycle, and toss it in the washing machine, because this sheet is done. Let's wrap this up in a husk and toss it in a pot of boiling water and get the whole family together and make some tamales so the sheet the sheet starts connected to death and it gradually becomes disconnected to death and then eventually we start reconnecting it to some degree that's like it the, is a spin cycle it <laughs> here's my, here's my opera that i'm writing it's called the spin cycle <laughs> 
it could be about a, a woman who kills her husband, except she doesn't kill her husband because exercise gives you endorphins and endorphins make you happy and happy people do oh, not spinning. kill their, spinning. their husband. Got it. Okay. Spins Great. Cycle. I got there. It took me a second. You listened to the episode. We don't need to recap this for you. I was just really excited because there was so little to draw from, and yet I made so much from it. We both did. I made the jokes. (laughs) Stupid jokes. If you want more ghosts for people to in your life, and who would blame you? You can follow us on Instagram at Ghosts for People 2. You can follow us on Tumblr at Ghosts for People 2. You can also email us if you have more to say or you want to send resources or anything like that. If there's media you think that we should look at. GWP2, number two, pod at gmail.com. And please do follow us because we are going to be doing deep dives into some of the sheet ghosts that we mentioned today in the future, especially Scooby-Doo, Casper. We have episodes planned for that, along with other sheet ghost related media. And you know the spiel, but if you can, rate us, review us. It would mean a lot to us. He rhymed. And we are not advertising whatsoever. So word of mouth would do such a great hand if you know anyone who would love to hear us talk about ghosts. We'd love to have you and them. (laughs) Um, So dress up as a ghost, put on a sheet, but don't scare any 80-year-old women to death. That's not cool. And if you think you see a ghost, don't shoot any bricklayers. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you, but I am ready to get four sheets to the wind. Oh. And as they say on the Ouija board... Goodbye. Goodbye.